I can remember a particular note-taking sort of protocol that we had where teachers would set kind of smart goals by whatever date this percentage of kids would be fluent. And then we would reflect on like, did we get there? And it was always this really positive celebration of like, wow, it can be done. Welcome back folks to Math Teacher Lounge. I'm one of your hosts, Dan Meyer. And I'm Bethany Lockhart Johnson. Hi, Dan. Hey, Bethany. We are currently motoring our way through our season on fluency. But before we check in with a new fantastic guest, just want to see how you are doing in the world of math and education and life in general. Take it wherever you want to. (laughs) I mean, you know, any day that I get to talk about math with you and with our guests, especially in our current season of fluency, is a good day. But I'm fine. I love counting with my toddler. I love trying to build on this idea that math is everywhere. And, you know, sometimes sometimes he's into it. Sometimes he's into it. But I, I got to tell you, something my toddler loves more than counting is saying no to everything. Just no. No. I'm like, wait, but this is, wait, I, Dan, I don't know what I'm doing. Just in general, just in general, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the the most honest thing a parent's ever said. Don't know what I'm doing. Don't trust the parents who say they do know what they're doing. I have a question for you about this. Can I I ask you, like, I've been on a parallel track here on this fluency season, trying to think about fluency with my own school-aged kids. And the other day, yesterday, last night, as a matter of fact, I had this, like, kind of mathy game book, really thoughtful book. I love it with the kids so far. First time we used it. And this thing happened where, like, it was like, okay, there's like the the problem said there's 17 hippos and one of them doesn't have like a block of cheese or something how many blocks of cheese are there all right you see what's happening here right you see where this is going like it's trying to like get the kid to like say oh 17 and i'll just like think backwards one on the number line or count backwards one or something there's a bunch of these and like one of my kids or both rather would keep on direct counting from one every time and i'm like trying to insinuate myself a little bit in the process but definitely not trying to say this is the wrong way to do it it's you know effectively got the answer but like how do you as an elementary math educator expert think about like helping the kid kind of make their way up the ladder of abstraction towards more efficient methods do i just Mm. let this play out what's what's my what's my move here you know it's interesting you've mentioned that before about like the counting up or the counting all really kind of I think it gets your goat a little bit Dan because you see where they're headed and you see the power in like not counting all you see that power and for me having been a teacher of children your kiddo's age I think if they're counting and they're counting accurately and they're making sense of the problem it's like I celebrate that, right? Like I would then try to pose a problem of like a really high number where it would make no sense to count like 89 hippos, right? There's 90 hippos. Like, so they're probably practicing decade numbers, right? So maybe there's 90 hippos and one of them doesn't have a block. Like, would they start at one or would they start at 90? And then like maybe have a hundred chart there so that if they, because counting backwards from a decade number, especially a high one is tricky, right? Right. So then they could find 90 and say one of them does. See what they do with that, you know? And just, I mean, personally, 
I wouldn't worry too much. I would say the fact that you are counting and celebrating math with your kiddos and doing it in a way that builds connection through fun stories is what really matters here. But in terms of wanting to support your kiddos in growing towards more efficient methods, I mean, that would be one suggestion. I know in my classroom, something that I did would, I would choose so that one of the share outs showed somebody counting all and one of the share outs showed like somebody who started with that number and counted on, but not in a way that would say like, look at this kiddo who works so much more efficiently and like, you know, just like, oh, you solved it differently. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I basically do that, except the, the share out is me and I'm sharing out the right method <laughs> the right and I'm method. <laughs> making sure that, that that my kid knows that it's right. No, I, I hear you on that and I do appreciate the, I really appreciate the craft, uh, the, the, the cognitively guided instruction work does this really well and like all kinds of other areas where it's like you got to give the kid an experience where this more efficient method makes sense and it feels yeah. really hard to rush it and I'll, I'll be totally clear that like I'm uh, th- this is not going on and I'm like oh no like what future will my kid have if by you <laughs> a little know, bit you are a little bit five and five and a half there and you know it's <laughs> like really not even a little bit but I just I do think it's interesting how this it's interesting is so excited to, to count all uh, it's like they're, they're he's just down with it and I just, I'm just curious what it takes to you know make that seem a little less appealing or make other <laughs> methods seem a little more appealing uh, my dear friend is an amazing teacher she has three girls and when she had her first girl, like she was so excited. She's, you know, teacher has all these resources, was so excited to work with her daughter and play math games and do these phonics games, right? Her daughter wanted nothing to do with any of it. And she had made some fun games, right? So my kiddo, I recognize toddler is all like very much developmentally appropriate that he is like absolutely <laughs> defiant, especially if it's time to leave the park. But what if he doesn't want to play these cool math games, Dan? What do I do then? Yeah, yeah. I wish I could tell you that that fear is unfounded, but I, I, it is founded with me also. I share that fear to some degree. I have the fear that my enthusiasm will be the thing that turns my <laughs> kids away from mathematics. Not that my kid would coincidentally be cold on math, but uh, I'm not I'm not worried for you. You've got that, that verve, that vibe. Um, oh, thanks, I have buddy. every confidence. And that is as sentimental a vibe you'll ever get <laughs> recorded on the pod with me anyway and Bethany. So hope you enjoyed that while it lasted. Uh, I'm pumped that we have some, like we have our own areas of expertise and experience. And I just love having the excuse on this pod to bring people on who have other kinds of expertise. And we've had chat so far this season with people like Lauren Carr who have experience in individual classrooms at developing fluencies in ways that are humanizing for students. We've had people talk uh, about assessment and how to assess fluency with Val Henry, Dr. Val Henry. And uh, of course, people like Jason Zimba who came on to talk about how to define fluency itself. Super helpful. And today we're talking with someone who has a lot of experience with math fluency at the school level. What does it look like when a school decides, hey, all of us, not just one individual you know, hero teacher, but all of us are gonna do something heroic and try to take on fluency as a project and make it a priority. What does that look like? What kinds of moves are effective? So for all of those reasons, we're very excited to have on Dr. Jody Garino, a former classroom teacher of 18 years who most recently taught first grade. She also served as a math coordinator through the Orange County Department of Education, and she's now part of their teaching, learning, and instructional leadership collaborative team. And I have a personal connection to share here as well. 
because not only was Dr. Guarino my professor for many classes at UCI, but I was a teacher at the school when she was spearheading this project that we're going to talk about today about fluency. And so before Dr. Guarino joins us in the lounge, let me just say, let me give a little brief summary of this project. So K through eight school, public charter school, and basically K through five, the principal had made a commitment that we were going to focus on fluency all year long. So as a teacher, I was told this year, we're going to be focusing on fluency, not only within your grade level, but we're going to be building vertical alignment and talking about it with teachers K through five. So from like before school started, hey, this is our big project for the year. And we were going to be crafting the story of fluency. What did fluency look like at this school for students? And I mean, that commitment is, I think, is incredibly powerful and to involve administration, but then also someone from outside, Dr. Guarino, who brings that like system-wide expertise and will be able to like come in with a fresh vision and help guide our professional developments. I just thought like what a cool project and how exciting to be a part of it. And I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Guarino to the lounge to tell us more about it. So let's welcome her. Dr. Guarino, hi, we're so excited to have you in the lounge. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. We're thrilled you're here. And we're always curious for our guests who come on about your own journey in fluency. It's easy, like thinking about math fluency, it conjures up lots of like prior images for people that can get a little bit challenging to untangle and mesh with research. So we love to just like say, hey, outside of math and in your own life, as personally or professionally as you wanna get, where is an area that you've been trying to develop fluency and what's something you've done to try to develop that? Sure. So. <laughs> I love this question. When I listened to the first episode and heard Jason Zimba talking about roasting chicken, uh, he got me thinking. So for me, I started doing Pilates a few years ago. And at the time, I was like learning vocabulary and I would listen to the instructor cues and interpret them and attempt to do them. And often my attempts would be followed up with some immediate feedback from the instructor. Make sure your knees are aligned with your ankles or different feedback. And now having practiced a few years, I wouldn't say I'm fluent but my form has certainly improved. And I think it's just been practice over time and continuing to engage in the work. Super helpful illustration here. Tell me about the, about the feedback a little bit more. Like, were there, have there been moments with like, like feedback is, there's like feedback that works and doesn't work and all the meta analyses say like, like a third of attempts at feedback do worse than with no feedback at all. So I'm, can you like say what's been like good and great feedback for you in Pilates? So I think there's a mix. There's certainly verbal feedback. Sometimes it's helpful to actually show people what you're like actually come up and model the move or like reposition. So I think the feedback looks all sorts of different ways, but it's immediate. And I think that's the big thing. And that's something that I love about Pilates. Like there's an instructor walking around giving everyone feedback all the time. And it's sort of like an expectation to help us all get better. So I don't know, we're not injuring ourselves. Well, and it sounds like some of those moves that took up so much of your thought processes, so much of your working memory that I have to like, what am I doing? Wait, where are my knees? Some of those things are just so now incorporated into your work, right? Like the fluency we hope for our kiddos. Totally. Yeah, it's awesome. The stuff that used to be hard is now your fluent edit, which allows you to do, I assume, more complex 
Pilates moves. I call them Pilates moves because I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> that works. <laughs> and just to squeeze a little more juice out of this orange here, I love these conversations about extracurricular fluency. But I kind of wonder if like in with Pilates, there's ways that your own body gives you feedback that's not related to, you know, the instructor. Like, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. Like this feels a little bit awkward or even painful. And that that's its own, its own form of feedback. <laughs> totally. And how that's if and when that's possible in math education or like when you can look at a, a, a co-learner and like see when a co-learner is doing the same thing a little differently and how that happens in math education with a, with a group of learners together. Um, anyway, all very interesting. Thank you for sharing. I don't know. My, my sweat and tears in my high school math class was giving me a lot of feedback. In a that, lot of negative feedback. In the thick yeah. of like the deepest part of my math anxiety. So no, but I love that. And I'm like, I'm picturing you like you go to that first class, you're nervous. And of course, like next to you on the reformer is like somebody who, you know, is like five years ahead of you, 10 years, 20, whatever, in their practice. And how, you know, if it's a great instructor, they're making space for everyone, right? And maybe they're physically manipulating your body in a way that you're like, oh, that's what it feels like. Okay, okay, I got, I'm, I'm digging it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. For, I'm telling you. I want to go to class with you and I want to have some roast chicken with Jason Zimba. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it actually called the reformer? It yes. Is. That's Whoa, the machine. Okay, so you are, you're manipulating your body in the reformer. This sounds like this, like the Spanish inquisition and a torture device. <laughs> it actually kind of looks like that. Cool. Good to know. Anyway, as much as I, I have like a lot more questions <laughs> about your classes, but what I'm so excited to share with listeners I got to be a participant in this project, but I don't know anything about how it came to be. I know that as a teacher, our principal basically had total buy-in and was like, guess what we were focusing on in our PD sessions, K through five, is fluency. And it, it was just such a unique experience. So I'd love, before we talk about the details of the project, I would love to hear like a little bit of the backstory. Like how did it come to be that you were leading with the principal this year-long fluency study? Sure. So at the time, I was a math coordinator contracted to work with the school. And there were some comments actually from upper grade teachers, like, my students aren't fluent. I'm not sure if they can do this other thing because kids are coming to me not knowing their math facts. So there had been this discussion, which I'm sure we've all sort of heard in different spaces, and so the principal identified this need to work on fluency. For me, it was sort of the perfect storm because at the time I had already been working with Val Henry, who was on one of your episodes, and doing work in my own first grade classroom prior years based on her work. So she had done some fluency research and it had um, amazing results, like the effect size was over 1.0 and even higher for Spanish-speaking kids. So super interesting that it had strong results. So my first grade team and I started this work and we had worked with Val for probably a few years. And once we got it going, like we saw amazing results. So this was before Common Core and our kids would leave first grade proficient up to what's now the second grade fluency standard. And we had seen results that we'd never seen before. So prior to that, we were doing, I think, really traditional practices, things like flashcards and time tests. So working with Val as a teacher really shifted my understanding of fluency 
So when my job was supporting teachers, supporting schools, supporting districts, as a math coordinator at Orange County Department of Ed at that point, the leadership of the school I had a contract to work with had identified the need to work on fluency. So when the principal of the school mentioned that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. We need to bring in Dr. Henry's work because I'd had such positive experiences over the last few years in my own classroom. So what I think is interesting here is you had experienced what it looked like when as a grade level you worked on fluency, right? You experienced that. So you mentioned that social setting. You had partners, accountability buddies to work with and say like, okay, I'm having this issue or whoa, this really worked well. So like, how did you take what you experienced in that setting? How did you use that to create something that was going to span K through five? Yeah. So um, I think the the social nature of it was critical to me, thinking about how do we do this both as grade level teams and a whole school. And that was something that we I hadn't experienced before. So when we did it, it was just my first grade team. So I was really thinking about how is this relevant to every grade level at the school? And luckily enough, upper grade teachers saw this as a need. Like everybody wanted fluency and fluency for kids. That sort of made the perfect storm of everybody was in. And I think had a shared interest in doing the work together. Uh, The school had also was a very collaborative space already. And they had structures in like professional learning communities. Students went to specials. So there was collaboration time built into the day. So all of the structures were already there. It was more a matter of like, okay, how do we do this together? We also ended up talking about what spaces were common. So um, at this particular school, I believe Wednesdays were like early out days. So what would it look like for the whole staff to engage in this like once a month so it didn't feel like each team working in isolation, but everyone together? And in that, we also came up the need of like, how would we communicate about this? And what protocols would be helpful school-wide so that we're all using shared language and using language in ways that we're all, we also have shared meaning. So how do we like co-construct ways that we're going to talk about things and even develop a shared vision? Like what does fluency look like and sound like? What do we want for kids? And what do we want happening in classrooms? This school was a project-based learning school. So everything was very like hands-on. So really thinking about all of those things as well. At the beginning, there was a lot of development. Like one of the things was about like, how are we going to know if students are making progress? What would assessment look like? And for that, I can remember even Bethany being in your classroom, like kids were playing games and we were just listening in like, oh my gosh, did you notice what that student just did? Like they were playing the card game, go fish. And so if they were playing fish for five, instead of asking for pairs, if they had a three, they might ask for a two. So things like, how are we going to like watch kids doing the tasks they're doing, but how will we sort of collect and keep track of information in ways that's that's humanizing. So we weren't going to do any time tests or any sort of written things that you would traditionally think about measures, but how would we do that? And how would we keep track of that information? And in terms of assessment, also thinking about we can gain information on kids from engaging with them in activities. And then there are probably some kids that were like, oh, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what, how, I don't know, Presley is thinking about this particular thing. So let me go over and ask her. 
I would love to just like back up a second and just replay for myself to see if I got this here and what parts I'm missing if I could. First, there was a rationale for this that like our our fluency scores, our indicators are not where we want them to be, let's say. And there's vertical integration where the the upper school or the middle school they said, "Hey, we would love to see students coming to us with some different kinds of skills." and fluency developed already. So you, you established that. And then if I'm hearing you right, there's just like a, a fairly lengthy period that my sense is should not be shortened even a little bit of establishing like shared goals, shared language around what we mean by fluency, what it looks like in the classroom, ideas about assessment. And you folks devised collectively other kinds of assessments that weren't the kinds that often turn kids off of fluency and give meager kinds of information, but like kind of like environmental fluency indicators. And it sounds like that was to both predict what might be the, like an, a final boss stage indicator of the end of course exam, but also to give like the opportunity to celebrate some wins along the way. Am, am I getting that right? Like those feel like some very interesting steps that other leaders could follow here all the way through. What did I miss there? For, for sure. So I think that's pretty much how it was. So if I go back to sort of the meaning of the word assess, like to sit alongside and listen, and I think that's what we did. So kids would be playing games and we would just be sort of leaning in and maybe not saying anything, but just listen to what they were doing. And then like internally, like, oh my gosh, that's so great. Look what just happened. And sort of keeping track of that and celebrating with kids too. Like, oh, I noticed that when you had three, you asked him for a five, like, wow. But I don't ever feel like they were being like evaluated or judged, which I think assessment sometimes does. Like it feels like it turns more into evaluation and sort of sorting kids. And this was the total opposite of that. It was just like listening in. And then if there was evidence that we didn't have, like I'm not really sure, then I would just – we would informally just ask like, hey, Bethany, how did you solve that one when you got to, I don't know, nine plus six? What did you do? What did you think about? So – I think from the student perspective, it was more about like, wow, my teacher's curious about my thinking or my teacher wants to listen to me or values my ideas. I mean, to me, that's what assessment is anyway, but often not the student experience. So I don't know. I didn't feel like there was ever pressure on kids or any sort of negative connotations around assessment. It was all like, okay, what do they know? And Dan, you sort of brought up that idea of like, what can we celebrate? Like we've made this great progress and we're noticing this stuff. And then what's next? So what do we as teachers, what do we do? I think every teacher would tell you like one resource we don't have enough is time. So how do we make sure we know where kids are to sort of think about, okay, we need to spend a little more time on this or we're ready to move on. What you said there seems so true to me that that students uh, really like and learn from teachers who like and learn from them. It feels to me like teachers who present themselves as students of their students and their thinking. That seems really powerful. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about assessment because what I remember as a teacher in my classroom, we definitely did one-on-one -on -one interviews with students where we would ask them, you know, we'd show them an expression and we'd ask them, like, what's two and three more? Or what's two and three? Or what's two plus three? And we would make detailed notes about how they solved. Did they solve like with counting? Did they just know it? Or did they use a strategy? Like maybe they said, uh, five. And I'd say, well, how did you get that? 
And they'd say, well, I knew three and three is six, so I just took one away. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened, but I'm saying they, did they use a known fact, like a derived fact to help them answer an assessment question? So we did that and that really helped us to understand where our students were. And we would do that a couple times throughout the year with the students, like as they progress through the different goals. But then, like you were saying, Jody, it was so powerful to take formative assessment notes while they were playing games, while we were having class discussions. Like we really learned the power of just these like every day listening to students thinking and, you know, like those on the spot in the moment questions as well. We learned so much from that too. Uh, there were definitely no time tests, definitely no time tests. So the assessments were like very relaxed and just a goal of like, hey, show what you know kind of thing. And it was an important part of the assessment, but it 100% wasn't the whole picture that we were building of where our class was. I'm sort of curious about the student experience at a little more depth. It sounds like you folks adopted a particular program and there's lots of programs out there without getting into any kind of like product recommendations, let's say, what are the like the features of the student experience, like as compared to perhaps like what they were experiencing before this wholesale shift in approach at the school level? Absolutely. So this work was grounded in some um, research principles, one of which was we spent um, 10 to 15 minutes a day on fluency. So in we used Dr. Valerie Henry's uh, work and in her research findings, it didn't matter if you spent 10 minutes or 30 minutes, you would get the same results. So we were really just spending five to 10 minutes a day, and it was a lot of games. And there was sort of a progression from concrete to representational to abstract. So an example of a concrete game, you might picture those two-color counters, those yellow and red counters, and kids might have five counters, and they would just sort of um, shake them or toss them and count like, oh, I got four and one and do it again. And I got three and two and sort of like how many times can they do that in five to 10 minutes? And every time it's just repeated practice of four and one, three and two, five and zero, like they were all red. Um, So that was an example of a concrete activity and an example of an abstract activity. um, As I mentioned before, the game Go Fish. So if we're working on facts of 10, then maybe we're looking for pairs of 10. So the student experience was very much like games. The other thing that I should mention in this sort of going back to even my Pilates experience was this idea of immediate feedback. So most of the activities kids did in pairs. So they were constantly getting feedback from their partner. Um, If they had a six and were asking for a four, you know, when their partner gave them a four and they realized, wait a minute, that wasn't the right number. Like they would get instant feedback rather than practicing something incorrectly. And then it also didn't take the the role of the teacher because it wasn't the teacher walking around giving feedback. It was sort of built into the structure of all of the activities. So I think for kids, like fluency was fun. And, you know, they might come in from recess and like, oh, now we get to play with the, the counters or play cards or whatever. Like, I don't think they ever looked at it as like, oh, fluency. I remember we did after you know, the five to 10 minutes or whatever, I think it ended up being about 15 because we'd kind of pull students back to together, back to the carpet to have a quick conversation about what they had just done. Like, what did you notice? Or what did, you know, we, we, it may be questions we'd come up with ahead of time. And then sometimes it was just things we'd seen based on 
like strategies. Like, you know, when I was walking around, I saw Jody and Dan doing this really interesting thing. They had these counters and they were using it to, you know, and we, we'd like pull out experiences. And I felt like that coming back together kind of cemented the learning in a way that, yes, it was games, but it also was like, gave the opportunity for that reflection on the experience that the students had just had. For sure. That feels like, Bethany, one of the most critical pieces, because I think prior to that, I mean, everybody does a lot of games in their classroom. And sometimes I think kids were just taking away like, oh, it's game time versus actually like as you're talking about those debriefs, like, okay, what did you notice about different ways to make 10? Or were there particular ways that were easy for you to think about and other ones that you're still working on? Or we also spent a lot of time that year, as I mentioned, the monthly staff meetings, really thinking about how would we even make public records from those debriefs? So I can still picture, Bethany, um, one of the charts in your room that was ways to make five. And so whether kids were working with connecting Unifix cubes or a common task with little kids was like, show me five, where they would just hold up their hand or show me four. And then they might show five in two ways and talk about um, a lot of times kids did something like this, where they were putting sort of a a stick or a pencil between their fingers, like five is two and three. Um, And I think about all of those sort of charts, because that really also led to SMP7, like seeing and using structure as they're thinking about math fluency and facts and relationships between things. So that was a really important piece was the debrief and then the public records or the charting that came from that as well. So before we talk about kind of what the path, like how you saw this evolving over the year. I want to just kind of help frame it a a little bit because I think something that was so interesting is you did such a good job of basically getting us invested. You and the principal did a very good job of getting us invested in like, we may be teaching, like I'm teaching kindergarten, but all of these students are our students. We care about what they're going to be encountering next. And what if you're a student in this school, what will your experience of fluency be K through five? And initially, there really weren't these touchstones that we could speak to. Like we may have all had similar training, but it was that norming and that really getting on the same page about what fluency sounds like, what it looks like, how do we talk about it? What are experiences and activities that students can do in this grade that could carry over to the next grade? And so I think if folks are listening and they're thinking, well, what could this look like? I think it's really important to emphasize that norming that you talked about. And then also those structures that you mentioned were in place that weekly we were meeting as a staff in your team, your grade level team. So every week you met together just with your other like direct peers in your grade level and you're working on this for a part of the staff meeting. But then at one of our staff meetings that month, we'd come together K through five and do those check-ins where we are crafting that story K through five and really using those protocols that you helped to build. So I'm inserting that because I feel like as you're talking, I'm reflecting on like, oh, I feel like that's some of the reasons why it worked. I don't know. I was really excited to be a part of that. And I feel like as you're talking about it, I'm remembering how intentional you were about those pieces to help build this project. Yeah, and I think that's huge and comes back to that idea even of our vision of like learning and community and what do we think it means to learn and even to collaborate. 
like the entire school was working in the same toward the same goal with the same vision. So I think it also offered, you know, the the goal was not around like team building and community building, but I think it actually did that at the same time because we all like wanted the same thing. And as you sort of mentioned, it was like we were all here for all kids. So how do we sort of navigate this together? I think the other thing was that before we had these systems in place, every teacher had two days of professional learning. And I think that's another important thing because it's, I don't know, I feel like it's pretty easy to go to professional learning and like, okay, yeah, I want to do that. I totally buy in. I did those activities and I'm excited and I I go back to my space and I try some things and then I'm like, now what? I'm not really sure what to do next. And so I think the value in that was having people and community to try things with like far beyond, like it's one thing to go to professional learning and even like, yes, like that is what I want. But then to go back and you're sort of like on your own isolated to like, what was that thing again? Or, you know, once you sort of jump in, you have questions that you didn't have the two days that you were sitting there. Right. What do you do with those conference notes? Right. You you just you went to this great session, you're fired up or you're listening to this podcast and you're like, ooh, I want to try this. But what could you put into place that allows that to be possible? Yeah. And how do you do that with other people so that you're sort of comparing conference notes or what did you do with that? Or what did you, how did you take up that idea? Or how are you making sense of it? So I think that to me was the beauty in this whole thing. It was like building upon a shared experience everyone had, but navigating it together. I'd love to think about just briefly here, how teachers developed. Obviously the students developed in some fantastic ways here. Um, I'm always just like dazzled and kind of scared to think about how secondary teachers like know a lot about one thing and primary teachers need to know a lot about a lot of things. And that just seems like a real challenge. So when you talk about like debriefs and creating takeaways with students, there's a lot of math knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge going on there. How did teachers develop that? Was that through the two PD days primarily through Val Henry's work or were there elements throughout the PLCs or throughout the year that result in, in teachers feeling more confident to do more than just like say, okay, it's time for these intentionally designed games, but to make more out of it. So I would say all of the above. I think certainly there was a lot to gain from the professional learning. I mean, for a lot of us, it was like, oh, that's what fluency looks like and sounds like. I know before I started working with Val, to me, it was like memorize facts and just automaticity where I hadn't really thought about like strategies and student flexibility. So I think there was a lot of learning about that content knowledge and even like, why does that matter? So that was a huge thing because I think memorizing your facts is different than, you know, if I know nine plus six is 15, how does that help me when I'm working with, I don't know, 39 plus 26, like these ways of thinking. So I think it it supported actually teacher flexibility and thinking too. I know it did for me. Like I would say I'm, I have a different level of fluency from doing this work myself. I think also, as you're mentioning, like vision and beliefs, that was huge. So seeing that kids actually can do this was so powerful. Bethany, I think about um, in kindergarten, the goal at the time was fluency to five. And at some points we were like, whoa, we're not even halfway through the year. And like kids have got it. Like they've got the end of the grade level standard halfway through the year, like, oh my gosh, what do we do now? And I think there was a lot of energy and excitement around that because maybe we hadn't been successful before or actually had this vision of like what it could look like. So I think it definitely impacted teachers' like vision of what could be and also beliefs because we saw it with our own kids. Like we saw it with the kids that 
you know, prior we had thought like they're not fluent and now it's like, wait a minute, they are. And, and it was these things that we did that led them to this. So I think there was, um, I don't know, celebration in that. I can remember a particular note-taking sort of protocol that we had where teachers would set goals, like by this kind of smart goals, by whatever date, this percentage of kids would be fluent. And then we would reflect on like, did we get there? And it was always this really positive celebration of like, wow, it can be done. And at the beginning, we were sort of setting arbitrary goals, like what does it look like to work toward 10 over a year and just sort of kind of pacing it versus like now, like, oh my gosh, that actually worked and we made it work. And also pedagogically. So as we had mentioned, or Bethany mentioned the charting, there was a lot, a lot of conversations about that. Like, I want to have a debrief after we do this activity, but I don't really know the question I might ask. Or I asked this question and kids just stared at me and it fell flat. So then somebody might suggest, well, try this. Or what do you think about this other idea? So I think every single thing led to learning, whether it was the professional learning, the collaboration in practice, watching kids do things that we were like, whoa, that was really effective. Or or I'm not sure they're really taking away what I was hoping for in this particular activity. So I'd say a lot of like learning to learn from teaching. I don't know, Bethany, does that resonate with your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I It's really nice to hear you, you reflect on it because it's making me think about there was so much power in focusing on that and having such like investment from the principal with your expertise, with Dr. Henry's research. But I, I want to make sure that like, as you're sharing this, as we're sharing this, I want folks who are listening to be able to take away like, yeah, if your school can, can focus on this, imagine the power, right? But realistically, how do we as educators, I mean, maybe we are able to head in that direction, but what are some things that like would be your biggest takeaways from the whole experience? Like for educators, what advice would you maybe want to leave them with that maybe you learn from this experience. And I feel like you've already shared a lot of those keys throughout, but maybe if there's anything else in particular. I guess one of the things, or sort of this is two things together, but I think it takes time and it takes friends. So like what we're describing, like that was over an entire, like a year long process. So I think one of the things is like not to give up, but just keep trying different things and reflecting on progress, like what's working, what's not working. And when I say um, it takes time and friends, at least in that situation, I think there was a lot of leaning into each other. So I think if if people are interested in working on fluency, finding a friend, even if that friend isn't at your school or at your grade level, like who can sort of be that like accountability partner or thought partner that can you can sort of lean on each other as you're doing this? I think another really important thing is to sort of have a shared vision and shared goals that you're working on together. So like, what does fluency look like and sound like? For me, another big thing when I started this was just learning. Like I wasn't up to speed on fluency research and I didn't really have any ideas of like anything beyond my flashcards and time tests. So that could be a big thing too, just looking at some research or or what's sort of out there that's also aligned with your philosophy and beliefs. So as I mentioned you know, the assessment things that we use, like how do you make sure whatever you're doing is aligned with the experiences that you want for kids and what you want to sort of, I don't know, be remembered by as contributing. Like I certainly don't want to be remembered as 
you know, the time that I started hating math in third grade because I didn't know my math facts and, and I was that teacher or whatever. So like, what do we really want for our kids feels like a really important thing too. The other thing I would say in our work that I didn't talk about at all, but is the role of the administrator and the understanding. And I think that is so pivotal because in that situation, the principal was really supportive in creating structures and time and and not moving on to the next thing like oh yeah we met about fluency next last week like we're done now absolutely absolutely like really understood that it was a journey but also in terms of principles like allocating the the resources the people the time the funding for the professional learning and making decisions that were aligned to that versus what if he had gone out in the middle of the year and just been like, yeah, I'm over that. I'm going to go get some computer game or something like the level of understanding and vision of the leader seemed really important too. So I would say if people are starting this on their own, like bring in your leader with you and have them experience the same sort of things you're working on together. feels like it could be useful. That's also useful. And I want to thank you for being a part of creating this opportunity and really uh, sharing your insights. I know it's hard to sum up a year-long project in <laughs> in the span of a podcast, but I feel like some of those really like key touchstones that helped ground that story of fluency K through five, you were able to share that and uh, really, really appreciate you joining us in the lounge, Dr. Marino. Well, thank you for having me. Come back anytime. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Dr. Jody Guarino, former classroom teacher who is now part of the Orange County Department of Education Teaching, Learning, and Instructional Leadership Collaborative Team. Check out the show notes for links to more resources and let us know what you thought of this episode. I am fired up. Like, I'm all excited thinking about this project and remembering being a part of it and I'm just like, let's go, let's go do more fluency things. I, it, it was a lot of fun. Visit us in our Facebook discussion group, Math Teacher Lounge, The Community. And to make sure that you don't miss any new episode in our season-long deep dive into math fluency, you can subscribe to Math Teacher Lounge Podcast on any and all podcast platforms. And let me tell you, the best way to share the love is with a review or let your let your friends know let your teacher friends know like maybe there's an idea that that sparked for you and you can say hey give this a listen hey you want to try something you want to team up and try this and report back and then message us and tell us what you did see it's it's a community you can find more information on all of Amplify's shows at our podcast hub go to amplify.com slash hub and finally here's a little sneak preview of what's to come on our next episode for some children we, the teachers, might be the only ones that can support them with the work of fluency, of learning their math facts, because maybe they have parents at home that are working two jobs, three jobs, and may not have those opportunities that other children have at home. And so taking away those opportunities from our students, we're taking away the chance for them to learn higher maths later on, because we are what they have to learn those foundational skills. We hope you'll join us next time on Math Teacher Lounge. Thanks so much for listening.